Good evening, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown, China Rising Radio, Sinoland. And I have got a good friend and a wonderful researcher and a writer, uh, Thomas Powell, on tonight. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you. Tom, Tom and I go, go quite a ways back. We have actually met. We met in California in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in December of 2017, I think. And I also on that same same time got to meet Jeff Kay and Frank Scott and we had lunch together. And so we have become, we have been friends and we go back to the beginning of the Bioweapon Truth Commission. And I have to say that 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 Tom was the motivating force. He and Jeff Kay uh, really pushed for it and then Godfrey and Godfrey and I got involved, and then uh, also George Burchett uh, for a while, and uh, David Pear still still around, and then we added uh, uh, Delia Gaitanjiva as as a member too. So if it wasn't for Tom, we would not have the Bioweapon Truth Commission. So uh, uh, he has been a huge uh, influence on that. Let me tell you more about him. Uh, Thomas Powell is a sculptor, writer, effigy burner educator, curator, and art history lecturer. Tom is the lead artist of the annual El Cucuy effigy burn in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And when he and his wife came to visit us in Normandy last year, I took it out, I took it out of the frame so that you all, so it would not be, you know, um, so it would not reflect, deflect, re reflect, I guess. This is one of the effigies that Tom that Tom helped build in Albuquerque, New Mexico, before it was set on fire. So uh, thank you so much for that, Tom. That was that's that's something I cherish. Uh, he is a founding member of the Bioweapons Truth Commission and contributor to its global online library. His book, The Secret Ugly, has so far been a seven-year research and writing project with a planned sequel on the history of the Korean War, remembering as an act of civil disobedience due out next year. Tom, this is not the first time Tom and I have been on the show together. We have had, we have done two shows previously. I've published four of his articles. I will make sure that that link is, and, and I just went back and checked over 130,000 people looked at Tom's um, uh, uh, articles and our two shows that we did uh, over the last few years. So uh, you can go back and check those out. But we're here, we're here for this 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 puppy right here, the secret ugly. My, I'm so proud to have my own copy, the hidden history of U.S. germ war in Korea, with a fabulous book cover by by George Burchett. So um, thank you so much for being on the on the show, Thomas. You're very welcome, Jeff. Um, question number one: It is not unusual. Uh, it it, it, uh, it is not unusual as a writer that you dedicated the secret ugly to your parents, especially since they play an important part of the story. But you take it one step further, beginning or ending most chapters. You share family vignettes from your childhood, mom, dad, brother, and you at work, play, and traveling. The first one was a surprise for me, but I ended up really enjoying them. 
as a as a personal literary device to enhance your book. It is quite un, or, unorthodox in any case. What inspired you to do this, and why do, did you think your readers would enjoy these vignettes? Well, it's not a simple question, Jeff. It's kind of complicated, uh, but I began this project oh, in about 2017, and uh, I wrote six journal articles for an academic publication, Socialism and Democracy, that laid out my research uh, over a period of about five years. Uh, and so when I decided to write a book, I compiled uh, these articles and, you know, kind of uh, filled in a lot of the blanks and added material. And I ended up with a tome that was about 450 pages. Oh, wow. So I tried circulating this to various publishers and I got no interest whatsoever. Uh, on it that I never even got responses back from most uh, most outlets. And so I was a bit discouraged and uh, I uh, showed it to my cousin, Tom Spear, who's a retired uh, English professor and a poet. Uh, and he read it and he was very honest with me. <clears throat> and he said flat out that it was boring. And, <laughs> you know, I was Ouch. ambitious for this project. I wanted to uh, uh, put it in the public domain. You know, I there was an opportunity early on to maybe find an academic publisher, and Rutledge was suggested. Uh, but looking at Rutledge books, they cost uh, if you can find them online, they cost seventy, eighty dollars. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, and. The only people that read them are other academics. They end up on a, a library and on a shelf in a university library in the basement. Um, and I wanted, I was more ambitious for this story than that. And so uh, Tom told me, hey, you know, you got to bring in more about your family, that that's the part of the book that really is interesting that I want to read. And it was very <clears throat> very liberating advice uh, because it allowed me to go back and rewrite the entire book uh, and change the voice. And so instead of being the, the snooze historian, I got to be the active uh, narrator and participant. And uh, I could be an artist uh, as well as a historian. And so I was very happy with that. And I'm happy with the book, the way it evolved. And I still have a second book now <laughs> come out of that initial research, which uh, I'm hoping to publish next year. Awesome. Well, your, 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 your family vignettes are really nice. And it's a great way to either begin a chapter or end a chapter. And I really enjoyed them. And I know, I know the other fans will too. It is an unusual literary device and, but it really, but it really paid off, um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in spades, uh, uh for the book. Well, uh, quite, go ahead. Add, Jeff, that, uh, my family is involved in this story, that my okay. father is Big time, key yeah. to this whole uh, revelation about bacteriological warfare. And so I wanted to make sure that the role of my parents also was acknowledged mm -hmm. that, uh, as whistleblowers, as the uh, people who initially 
uh, brought this to the to the public attention and to the world and suffered for it with the mm-hmm. uh, put on trial for sedition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing story. On page 27, you say, quote, most people understand that germ warfare is more about inflicting mass civilian casualties. Biological warfare is a weapon of eugenics and race war, Uh, which that's a powerful statement. Given the gravity of the situation, why are there not million man marches protesting the West development and use of bioweapons? Is it denial, apathy, ignorance? What do you think? Well, all the above, Jeff. Uh, I, you know, it is about killing people. Uh, weapons of mass destruction generally are about killing people, uh, not about armies, because armies can be protected with uh, gear and gas masks and clothing and uh, vaccines and stuff, but the civilian population is much more difficult to protect. And uh, the whole concept of weapons of mass destruction comes from a larger concept, which is that of total war. Uh, And this is very much an American uh, philosophy, you know, it goes back to the Indian Wars and it goes back to General Sherman's March to the Sea and and it's very much part of uh, of the uh, imperialist model of, of mm-hmm. states, and we feel that or we the total war uh, theorizes that uh, modern wars, that's post-industrial revolution wars, are not wars between kings and armies. They are wars between nation states, uh, and in the nation state. Uh, the entire apparatus uh, and economy of the state machine is geared towards war. And therefore, um, Mm -hmm. any part of the state machine and any population that's productive uh, becomes a a viable target. And you're going to have to kill a lot of people if you're going to go against a nation state, especially one that might be larger than you. Absolutely, like China, exactly. Before the U.S. became the global leader in bioweapon development, production, and use, and this is a really key part of of your story because what the Japanese did in China directly impacted America's ability to uh, carry on bioweapon development and use after after World War II. But in, in China... The Japanese, 1932 to 1945, killed an estimated 400,000 Chinese using plague, cholera, and anthrax as weapons. It's a huge story, uh, but please give us a quick rundown on these war crimes. Yes, that is a huge story, um, and actually, there are there is quite a library uh, on that now that many authors have uh, taken on this topic. Many Western authors have uh, and have described it, and, and uh, your listeners can can find that material fairly easily. It's uh, Unit Seven Three One and uh, Ishi Shiro. Uh, those are the the best tags to search, and and you will find a great deal about this story. But essentially, this uh, uh, Japanese medical doctor uh, Ishi, uh, who's 
could be considered the godfather of, uh, of BW because he certainly was there at the very beginning uh, and he was the promoter of it and he had a humongous uh, uh, sort of personality that allowed him to push his agenda. Um, he, he's kind of the founder of scientific uh, biological warfare uh, using germs to kill people. And uh, he uh, convinced the uh, uh, upper echelon staff of the Japanese army to, that uh, if they were going to be successful as an imperial power, uh, they would need to be able to kill massive numbers of their enemy, uh, especially if their rivals were Russia and China, which were much larger uh, nations with uh, a lot more people that for Japan to succeed. Uh, in its legitimate uh, aims of uh, becoming a, a colonial power, it would need to be able to kill a hell of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It was the easiest and cheapest way to do it, and the Japanese military uh, upper echelon agreed with him, and they set him up uh, in Manchuria after the, uh, the Japanese invaded and occupied Manchuria. They set him up... Uh, uh, with a facility there, a big prison camp uh, called Zongma Prison Camp. And he uh, started butchering people there initially uh, until that place uh, he ran into difficulties there and uh, they moved him to a new facility and built an even bigger facility called uh, the Ping Fang Death Camp. And he operated it and, and ran uh, systematic experiments uh, with diseases, uh, inculcating people with uh, various diseases to find out, uh, you know, the pathology of disease. And uh, it was run uh, very scientifically, and uh, and it was a, a factory of death. It was a, a death machine you know, a, a, a means of, of um, killing people on a large scale. And they did this, uh, he did this and his colleagues uh, and the, uh, the estimate of 400,000 Chinese, I think is a low ball estimate. Mm -hmm. It was in the hundreds of thousands of people that were killed by having their wells poisoned and having uh, uh, infected insects uh, uh, unleashed upon them. and and such and so that's kind of the background mm -hmm. absolutely and then later of course um ishishiro he on page 49 he he became good friends with the americans um <laughs> you wrote quote the bottom line is the u.s government and u.s army lied bribed blackmailed threatened covered up, broke numerous international laws, and failed to prosecute major war crimes, all in order to acquire the Japanese germ warfare research. Bill Powell, which is your father, of course, spilled the beans on this sordid deal, but it is really only the first part of our story, end of quote. Pr please tell us briefly what happened uh, about, uh, about the Japanese uh, with the Americans. When Russia entered the Pacific War, uh, it was on Nagasaki Day, the same day the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Uh, and that, for the emperor of Japan, was 
you know, the final blow that Japan's war was lost. Uh, and uh, so Ishii could see the writing on the wall very clearly. The Russians had crossed the border into Manchuria and were invading. And so he and his colleagues, these other doctors, uh, dynamited uh, their factory there at Pinfang and uh, uh, took their research with them. Uh, and beat a hasty retreat down to Port Arthur and commandeered uh, passage back to Japan uh, and were hiding out in the uh, suburbs of Tokyo. Uh, most of them had gone to their hometowns to hide uh, and uh, awaited the American arrival and occupation. And so uh, one of the first, very first connections that was made uh, between uh, the, the American uh, occupation force was uh, a scientist from Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, Murray, uh, was sent ashore uh, to look for these guys. And uh, they were right there on the beach waiting for him, or at least their uh, one of their number was. And so that began a negotiation process uh, by which the U.S. Uh, managed to make a bargain and make a deal and offer immunity uh, and uh, allow the, uh, uh, the Japanese uh, war criminals, because they were, uh, to escape prosecution in exchange for uh, their uh, their secrets and, and their research. And this research then was uh, eventually all collected and shipped to Fort Detrick. Uh, and there were very glowing reports that were issued at Fort Detrick uh, about the uh, utility of this research, that uh, there were things that the Japanese had done that Americans could not ethically do, uh, experiments on live prisoners. And uh, so that uh, that's what happened. The U.S. acquired uh, the uh, Japanese weapons program in its entirety. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. already had an existing weapons program that it had begun in World War II, but the Japanese program had a 10-year head start on them, uh, mm -hmm. so it was, uh, it was really uh, well along. And, of course, as we know, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, America, the American military went, went ahead and did exactly what the Japanese did, experimenting on people. But you need to, but you need to read the book to find out about it. So be sure and buy, be sure and buy the secret ugly. Uh, next question. I loved your statement on page sixty-one. Quote: The opposing views cancel each other out in the news, and the truth gets buried. As a result, the powerless remain disempowered. In this manner, balanced news reportage becomes a tool of class warfare. What a great quote! Tell us what tell us tell us what inspired you to write that. Well, just observing, uh, you know, being a news consumer for years and years and years, uh, you most of us are a nerd. You know, we just assume the news is the news and don't analyze it. But when you start analyzing the news, it becomes very clear that you are getting uh, the corporate news media's point of view mm -hmm. and the ownership of that news media's point of view and this concept of balanced reporting you know sounds great i mean it's the scales of justice 
things, right? <laughs> There's good <laughs> and evil and right and wrong and this and that. And if you get both sides' opinion, then you'll get the true story in the middle. But if you know you have some poor whistleblower or some somebody whose uh, children are dying of leukemia because of the factory next door, and then you have their word against uh, the word of corporate lawyers or government spokespeople, uh, they cancel each other out and if news mm-hmm. and nothing gets done. And that's why it uh, is a very effective uh, mechanism of class warfare to maintain the status quo. You know, yeah. it's the truth, but uh, it's not. Which and the status quo, of course, is uh, you know the is what is what is happening to the ninety nine percent. So, uh, yeah. which is which is not which is not very uh, which is not very uh, 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 shall we say optimistic. You devote three whole chapters, page one hundred and sixteen to one hundred and thirty four. So you see, guys and gals out there, I did read this book. You know. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of people who interview, a lot of people who interview authors, they don't read the book. They get a, like a three-page summary. But mine's all marked up. I've got marks. Mine's all marked up and underlined. And so uh, I did actually. So th- these, these, the, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not bluffing. Uh, in, on page 125, you mentioned that the U.S. decided to apply and and quote everything but the kitchen sink bioweapon bombing campaign which started on december 15. from all of your research are there any good estimates of how many chinese and north koreans were killed as a result of uh uh uh, the u.s's bioweapon attacks uh, during the korean war well let me first go back to your quote everything but the kitchen sink is actually the words of ed regis that he is uh, one of the uh, consummate deniers of uh, the BW allegation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he's using this in a disparaging way. Mm. Uh, but how to put this? Um, we don't know. The Chinese haven't released, and the North Koreans haven't released uh, mortality and fatality uh, numbers uh, from the U.S. Uh, BW campaign. Uh, they consider it to be a military secret. Mm, okay. Uh, so that's the, the reasons they give. Uh, but uh, I understand that, uh, that there will now be research. Uh, there's seven decades have passed and that the Korean War is now open for scholarly research in China. And so I'm hopeful that uh, more information about this will be forthcoming. Okay. Question number eight. You spend two detailed chapters covering, the, and it's really interesting. It's like a Perry Mason. If, if you're an American, remember Perry Mason, the uh, the lawyer in the, uh, back in the 1960s, you know, uh, it's just like a Perry Mason case. You detailed chapters covering the kangaroo show trial with the U.S. government prosecuting your mother and father. I mean, can you imagine how many, how many people out there get to write about something like that? It did not end until, believe it or not, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, does that, does that name ring a bell? Called off the dogs in 1961. 
your mom and dad bravely stood firm and stuck to their guns. Tell us a little bit about this story. Well, uh, Jeff, I wouldn't call it a, a kangaroo trial, okay? Because that, that implies the judge was dishonest and there, there was okay. about the court proceedings. And this was a very serious uh, federal indictment that was handed down after okay. investigations. So I, I, it was a, uh, a very uh, sort of frightening times. Uh, there had been many prosecutions of people for communist activities and denouncements, and many people had been uh, fired from their jobs and, and teachers and it, been sacked and who hadn't taken loyalty oaths. And so it was a terrifying time. Uh, I was a little kid, so I don't really uh, didn't experience it personally. Uh, but the court case had uh, had really uh, some very serious implications for the First Amendment, uh, the right of free speech, uh, the Fifth Amendment, the uh, right to uh, uh, to uh, not to have to self-incriminate or confess. And um, also the Sixth Amendment about the right to a fair trial and the right to bring witnesses and, and testimony in your defense. So these were, there were major constitutional issues uh, at battle uh, in this court case. Uh, and that's why the preliminaries uh, dragged on for four years uh, before the, the trial actually uh, came to be held. And then it ended abruptly after three days with a mistrial. And what <laughs> my parents had two very competent lawyers that worked for them. Uh, Al Warren, uh, he had been uh, in the ILWU uh, no, he, he had been a labor lawyer, excuse me, let me back up. He was a labor lawyer and he worked for the ACLU. I'll get my act mm. straight here. <laughs> and he had been in the trenches and he was a very competent uh, cross-examiner. And, and he uh, decided that his task was going to be to find witnesses that my parents were facing. My dad was facing 13 count indictment. Uh, and each one of these sedition counts uh, had a maximum penalty of uh, 10 years in prison and $20,000 fine. So he couldn't plea bargain uh, anyway because he was going to go to prison no matter what he did or said. Uh, so he opted to fight. And my mother and the other person who was indicted with them, uh, Julian Schumann, were facing each one count uh, of conspiracy. And so the strategy of the defense was to fight and uh, to fight the indictment, that they, they would take on every, uh, every part of the indictment and challenge it and not give an inch. And so we're in uh, decided that his task would be to go uh, find witnesses, that they, he, would, uh, he would bring witnesses to testify. But all the witnesses to the war crimes uh, and uh, the other uh, parts of the indictment, the other charges were mostly in China. And 
So he requested to have to have these witnesses brought to the states to testify. And the State Department, which was very much involved in, uh, in the prosecution, uh, along with the Justice Department, uh, decided that they would not allow anybody from China to come to the United States uh, to testify that there was no agreement, judicial uh, accord between the U.S. and China, and the U.S. didn't even recognize the People's Republic of, of uh, China, and so um, nobody from China could come to testify. Uh, at their for their defense, and so we're and said, well, in that case, I need to go to China and collect depositions in China, and but the State Department had already decided, or the, the at least the administration of Truman and Eisenhower had decided that Americans would be prohibited from traveling to China, uh, and it was off limits, and so. Weirin went to the judge and said, hey, look, I have a right to the, my clients have a right to uh, have witnesses uh, and all my witnesses are in China and uh, I need to go there to take depositions and uh, what am I going to do? And so the judge, you know, <laughs> tossed the ball back to the State Department, said, look, you're going to have to validate his passport to go to China uh, to collect depositions. Otherwise, I'm going to have to throw this trial out. So the State Re Department relented, and they had to. And so they gave Weirin a passport authorizing him to go to China, and it was the only one they gave out. <laughs> he was the only person in a, only American uh, whoever got a passport authorized to go to China for years and years. <laughs> so he went to China supposedly on two weeks to collect depositions and he ended up staying eight weeks and he had a great time and he was wined and dined and he met all kinds of people and took all kinds of depositions and he had a whole suitcase full of them when he got home. So that was Weirin and then Doris Walker, uh, the other defense attorney, uh, she, her job that she sort of took on was to uh, challenge all the other uh, counts of the uh, of the indictment, which were for things like uh, uh, claiming. My, these are all based on things my dad had written in his news magazine, the China Weekly Review, and later the China Monthly Review uh, that was published in Shanghai, where he and my mother were. And he had also he had written editorials saying that they, the U.S. had stalled the truce negotiations, um, that they had uh, attacked uh, the truce delegation uh, uh, in transit uh, of the uh, neutral zone with missiles and, and bombs and, and airplane strafing and stuff, uh, and that they had uh, engaged in uh, numerous other activities. There was... So she went out and started looking for documents, and she found documents to support uh, the defense on each of the other 12 charges of the indictment, and she subpoenaed them. They were in the records of the State Department, the Justice Department, and the Army, and the, and the Defense Department, and so she wanted access to these documents. And so she put together a very lengthy list of documents that she wanted 
that she was able to identify that she wanted the, the government to produce. And essentially, this challenge of hers turned the tide of the case. And it put the government uh, in the role of defending itself uh, rather than being uh, the prosecutorial, that all of a sudden they were going to have to defend themselves um, because uh, and defend these documents that it existed. And so the uh, the army and the, uh, essentially refused to part with the documents, said we're not going to give them up. And uh, they had to give up something, though. And that became uh, this uh, statement by the prosecutor, a uh, guy named Schnacki, who was the federal prosecutor, since he couldn't get the uh, he couldn't hand over the subpoena documents. Uh, he had to give up something. And so they uh, produced an affidavit uh, stating that uh, the U.S. did have the capacity to wage bacterial war uh, in Korea and had the, uh, uh, but that these weapons were stored on American soil. And uh, so that was. That was a, a, a major confessional concession that uh, the United States government made that came out at this trial that in 1952, the United States did have the capacity to wage operational bacteriological warfare. And what happened with the, the trial itself uh, was that when the uh, trial began, uh, the trial was followed very much, the, the prosecutor attempted to follow very much uh, the formula that had been laid down by the uh, attorney that had worked for uh, the Senate committee that had uh, questioned, uh, interrogated my father. And this was a guy named Carpenter, uh, and he had been very much involved in, in uh, the of getting the Japanese war criminals uh, excused from prosecution at the war crimes tribunal. And uh, he had called, uh, he had brought in to testify in the Senate uh, a bunch of, uh, a group of POWs uh, from uh, Korean, uh, from the camps that were run by Chinese uh, in North Korea. Uh, to testify, to give emotional testimony about how they'd been forced to read uh, my father's uh, magazine uh, while in prison camp, and it was part of their indoctrination and brainwashing. And so they gave very emotional testimony, uh, and so this was the plan of the prosecutor then, Schnacki, to use these same uh, soldiers to come in and testify and soften up the jury uh, in order to get an easy conviction. But as soon as he called them to the stand to testify, uh, the attorney Walker, uh, what do you call it? She objected and said that uh, these events they're describing are happening overseas. They're not within the territorial boundaries of the United States or its maritime possessions. And therefore, this is not evidence that can be submitted because the statutes for sedition are very specific that it needs to occur on American soil, that it can't <laughs> over. Brilliant. 
And Brilliant. so the sudden, uh, this whole more than half of the witnesses that the prosecution had intended to uh, interview on the stand had to be dismissed. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was a major faux pas for, for Schnacky. Uh, so anyway, the judge then excused the jury uh, so that he could discuss the with Schnacky in, in court. And so Schnacky's standing by the bench and he and the judge are having this animated conversation and the judge, uh, Judge Goodman, uh, tells him, hey, look, you charge these people under the wrong with the wrong statutes. So you, you could get a conviction if you charge them under the treason statutes, but you, you, you know, this is, uh, you're using the wrong statutes to prosecute this case. And why the judge hadn't spoken up before it began a trial or why Schnacky hadn't dawned on him about this is, you know, is up for speculation. Uh, but, the, uh, there was a reporter. I mean, the, the courtroom was packed with reporters. Uh, and the reporter from the Oakland Tribune ran out to the lobby phone booth and called in this development to the to his editor. Uh, and there was a banner headline then that was run in the afternoon papers all across the, the Bay Area. Uh, you know, that the, the judge had, uh, you know, had accused the... Uh, uh, my parents of treason. <laughs> so after that, getting a fair trial wasn't really possible. I mean, it kind of ended the trial, but the government ended up getting exactly what it wanted out of this trial anyway, as it stifled any discussion of the BW uh, charges. And uh, so that, that's, uh, and so they, they, so the case langered and it langered for a few years uh, until, as you said, uh, Robert Kennedy realized that there was no way of getting two witnesses, which are needed for a conviction for treason or treasonous act, and that uh, you know it was easier to dismiss the case that the government had, you know, had succeeded in its objective. Well, hallelujah for your for your mother and father and for you and your brother to to get your lives back uh, together after that. This is uh, this is a a, a really fascinating um, um, history about uh, a number I think twenty something uh, U.S. pilots who were in the Korean War. And they're detailed, to, and and these are all on these are all on the on on the Bioweapon Truth Commission and the Global Online Library scans of their handwritten of their handwritten testimony uh, with all their drawings and and designs and everything. But anyway, their detailed testimonies about attacking the Chinese and North Koreans with bioweapons. And later, their unfortunate return home <laughs> after 1953. Please give us a rundown on this incredible story. Well, there were in total 25 confessions made by uh, American pilots uh, to their participation in uh, germ war acts. And that, that mostly is just uh, drop bombs or aerosol spraying of, uh, of 
you know, disease agents uh, in the North. And what's interesting uh, about these confessions uh, is that they, first of all, they're very heartfelt. Uh, they didn't come easy. They just didn't uh, spill the beans that these young men uh, all spent months kind of mulling over their circumstances before they finally uh, fessed up. And uh, they were not tortured. Uh, they were not deprived, starved, or put in cramped positions and stuff. They, they uh, were housed in isolation uh, and interrogated daily uh, by... Uh, uh, the Chinese uh, sort of deprogrammers. And eventually they kind of of their own volition uh, gave these confessions. And what's interesting about the confessions is that they, confessions are something that is a big thing that uh, telling, sharing the, the weight of your soul is a really big sort of thing in human psychology and affairs. And, and there are great tr confessional traditions and they kind of flow through as a wave function, you know, they, they peak and trough and, and show up in different places. And, what happened in North Korea with these pilots, uh, with the Chinese interrogators at the North Korean prison camp, was that the uh, three great confessional traditions kind of all came together at this time and kind of uh, crested and reinforced each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. You have to realize that uh, these pilots were. Well, tw most of them, 21 of them, were under the age of 30. They were lieutenants. They were uh, young, white, Christian men and educated, college educated. You don't put an uneducated man in a cockpit of a very expensive aircraft. You teach them uh, and train them uh, beforehand. So these were all well-educated well and well-read guys. Uh, and then there was uh, there were four pilots that were older that were uh, there was three colonels and a major that were in their thirties. Uh, so you have this Christian confessional tradition, okay? That uh, you get uh, in in Christianity, you confess in order to find peace with your soul and and to redeem yourself you're given instructions on how to what some things words to say uh and you think about it and repeat them uh and you absolve yourself of these sins that you carry and that's one confessional tradition and another one that was at work here was um psychoanalysis that this had become very much uh, studied and understood that you could help people who had serious emotional trauma by having them spill the beans on what's going on inside of them to introspect deeply and to sort of figure out how they feel and, and connect the dots and you can uh, help them in that way to find inner peace. And so that was very active here because the Chinese who interrogated uh, these prisoners were all well-educated. They were doctors and professors and, and uh, they understood this tradition and had studied it. And they were a lot older than the pilots as well and had more worldly experience. 
And then the third tradition also uh, is the communist tradition of, of confession. And this, the first two are private. Western means are private. You know, you tell your, you bear your soul privately to uh, uh, to an individual who promises not to share it. The communist tradition is a shared tradition where you, it's not private. It's not done quietly. It's where you go to meetings, uh, communist party meetings, and you acknowledge your failings. You're, you're failing to abide by the doctrine or to uh, have understood things correctly. And that now you see things a little better, more clear has been explained to you. Uh, and you, you promise to, to kind of move forward with the, you know, a better understanding of the, you know, the, the communist uh, ideology. And so, Anyway, that's a that's a different, but it's also very uh, important and legitimate form of confession, and it also helps. Because in the process of confessing is all about sort of healing your soul, healing something that's uh, very wounded within you, and getting it off your chest and being able to move forward. And so that's what I see when I read these confessions by. Uh, these pilots is that I, I see men actually grappling with this, you know, with trying to, uh, uh, you know, to atone, you know, recognize yeah. that what they've done uh, is 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 a form of evil, you know, that they were ordered to do this and they didn't have much choice in the matter, uh, but here's an opportunity to to um, to absolve themselves. And they, they took advantage of it. And then when they got back uh, to the U.S., of course, the Army put the thumbscrews on them and said, hey, if, um, you know, here's, <laughs> we'll court-martial your ass if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't sign these confessions and uh, these retractions. And then you look at the retractions and you contrast them to the confessions. And there's a huge difference in the emotional content, mm -hmm. language. Um, and the, the retractions are all pretty much standardized, you know, they go down a checklist of, of things, uh, you know, that the, they claim happened to them, uh, which previously they had denied, like uh, torture and, uh, and starvation and mistreatment and brainwashing and whatnot. So that's that's kind of where the confessions fit in. They're very mm. interesting documents. Yeah. In, military history and, and history in general, that these these are rather remarkable documents. Yeah, they're all on, um, I don't know if we have all 25 of them. We've got a good 20-something, mm -hmm. maybe missing one or two on the on, in the Bioweapon Truth Commission uh, library. And they're scanned. I mean, these were handwritten. Maybe a couple of them were typewritten. But what, when you read them, it's just like there's no way anybody could make this up. I mean, there's just no way. They are so detailed yeah. and so and so methodical and so logical and so it's like explaining it's it's like explaining the you know how to how to how to how to take apart a motor and put it back together again. I mean, it's so rational and so and so reasonable and so honest i mean you, you know when you read these and see their and their drawings of the bombs and the and the drawings of you know how they were uh, you know 
hooked onto the airplanes and and everything else. You know, you, you know that these were these were these were real confessions. And of course, as you said, they got a gun held to their heads when they got back. And if they didn't recant, then they would they're, they'd go to jail. So uh, they didn't have much choice except to uh, you know except to do that, which is um, uh, a, uh, a, a more pressure on them when they got back. And I'm sure it was not a very pleasant uh, a very pleasant experience. The um, you are not alone in exposing America's blatant use of bioweapons at home and abroad. And for the fans who don't know much about these war crimes, please recommend three books that you that would complement each other and what each one offers. And, I, and I'd like to point out that, I mean, this book is heavily, I mean, there are some, I mean, there are just, you know, the footnotes and the, and the books and the bibliography that, that these, that, that he has put together, Tom has put together, it's just, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, and so there, there's many, 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 many books. And in fact, he even has a whole, a whole a whole chapter about the literature. So can you please narrow narrow down three of them, and I'll write these down and make sure to have all these these book links available. And just tell us about them and and uh, and and what each one offers. Well, I I've had a hard time narrowing down just three, Jeff. So uh, <clears throat> the, after uh, my father. Uh, uh, wrote a couple of articles in the early 1980s uh, about uh, uh, Shiro Ishii and the uh, uh, BW camp at uh, up there. Uh, after his articles came out, there was it took a while for uh, the for books to start coming out about the topic. But the first one was uh, Peter Williams and Dave Wallace. Uh, and if you buy this book, be, be sure to get the, the Hodder and Stratton edition that was published in England and, and not the, uh, the version that was published in the United States, because uh, that one is a censored uh, copy that they eliminated the complete chapter. Uh, <laughs> Peter who? Peter who? Uh, Peter Williams. Uh -huh. David Wallace. And David Wallace, and what's the name of it? It's uh, Unit Seven Three One, and then oh, okay, that's uh, right. it has a sub a subtitle as well. Okay, Unit Seven Three One. Okay, great. Well, we with that so that covers the whole Japanese. Um, this is whole uh, the Japanese. first ones are the, the first two I'm going to give you here are uh, about the Unit Seven Three One and the Japanese. Okay, and then I like Daniel Berenblatt's uh, A Plague Upon Humanity. That I think he's he uh, tells the story uh, concisely, and and uh, some of the other versions I, that that are uh, available are, are just a little too long and wordy and kind of tomes. All right. And then I will, get, I, I will put all the links, and I'll make sure that the link that I provide uh, for for Unit Seven Three One by Peter Williams and David Wallace is the British version. By Hodder and Stratton. Yeah. All right. And what's the third one? Uh, well, then uh, there's a couple of books uh, that are about the U.S. bacteriological program. Okay. In, I'm uh, all, I, I'm, I've got my I've got my pen, pencil and paper ready. So the first one uh, uh, is Stephen Endicott and Edward Eggerman. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic. 
and biological warfare. And this yeah, is, uh, I, I, uh, when I first read this, I thought that they had made a, an ironclad case uh, for this. Uh, and it was kind of a shock to me years later to find out that they had, uh, what they had gone, uh, been subjected to uh, with their book. And then I would also, uh, I like uh, Dave Chaddock's book, This Must Be the Place. Uh, how do you spell how do you spell Chaddock? C H A D D O C K. Okay, and what's it? And th this must be the place. Uh, how the U.S. Uh, let's see, I forget the exact subtitle. How the U.S. waged germ war in Korea and, and denied it ever since. <laughs> That's the subtitle. So Dave okay. Chaddock's book is good. And then uh, to uh, for the. Uh, uh, denial literature. I'd like to uh, to recommend Ed Regis's Biology of Doom. That uh, he really explains uh, the uh, how the program worked at the and the history of of uh, Fort Detrick, uh, and he uh, is uh, very gung ho and supportive uh, of their. Uh, efforts there, and and he writes a kind of glowing report, and you can tell when you read his book that he's been fed uh, a lot of information uh, that he didn't uh, he didn't have to do any real hard uh, work and researching that it was all pretty much given to him and he ghost wrote it, um, and so it's it's fascinating because you learn a lot about uh, you know the the process of of how you, you you set up these experiments and how you you figure out how to use birds in the South Pacific migratory birds to spread germs across the islands uh, of the Pacific and you know it's just kind of fascinating and uh, uh, account of a sort of a how-to a gung-ho kind of uh, account so those are the books I, I recommend all right great well I guess I should have uh, made my, made the list five or six but I got them all and I will put them on the web page for all for all the fans out there so um, and uh, and if and, and everybody you don't have to go you don't have to buy them you can go to your library your church your place of worship you can go to you know a local university a college you know a local college a junior college a high school or whatever public library they love for people to rec to to recommend books to to put on the bookshelf and so then you can check them out for free so uh and you talk about the establishment's quote denial machine and you, you this this you, what you just talked about ushers this question very very well the establishment's denial machine end of quote please tell who the hired guns are who lie and cover up america's use of bioweapons well the uh the dean of the denial lobby is a guy named uh milton leetenberg and he's at the center for international security studies at Maryland. Uh, he's got a chair there, uh, and uh, he is the one who uh, kind of uh, is a cover-up artist for uh, American activities abroad. And he's he's really uh, the leader in the whole uh, germ war denial uh, business. 
Uh, he's the first uh, American uh, author to claim that uh, COVID-19, that SARS, uh, was uh, developed in China and was uh, a germ weapon uh, that got away uh, from their laboratory in China. So he very early on uh, finger point uh, China as a culpable party uh, for the COVID, COVID epidemic. And he also uh, fingered uh, the Russians for the, uh, uh, the, the underwater, uh, uh, the invasion of, of uh, Sweden's. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that Russia, in the news. Which turned out later on to be British and American submarines. And he wrote a whole book uh, you know, uh, full of lies, uh, uh, blaming the Russians for this activity. So he's a scoundrel, uh, but he's a very competent scoundrel, and he's been doing the bidding for the U.S. Uh, and leading this for, for years now. Yeah, you and I have both written articles about him, and, and, I, and I will put, um, I'll put those links on, on uh, your interview webpage as well. I love your observation. You have some great quotes, by the way, Tom. I just love something. You have so many good quotes, but we only have so much time. But this one I really loved. In Spycraft, quote, in Spycraft, the wasteland between what is true and what is credible is a minefield, end of quote. Please expand on this a little. Well... I was hoping that would be self-explanatory, <laughs> but, uh, you know, spycraft is all about lies. It's all about pushing uh, lies and disinformation as much as it is about gathering information. It's about dispersing uh, false information. Um, and one of the things that uh, Spycraft does now uh, is it produces a lot of fraudulent documents. Uh, and, uh, as I've been doing this uh, research, uh, I've realized how, how historians are so locked into documentation that um, they do not, historians for some reason do not trust uh, eyewitness accounts as much, uh, uh, testimony by people who are uneducated. Uh, they much prefer to see a written document. So if you have a boiler room in the basement at uh, Langley uh, cranking out, uh, you know, fraudulent documents, you can flood the market. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you train your future historians to believe a bullshit history. You can modify history by modifying documents that look real, that are totally counterfeit, and you pass them around to graduate students and people, your next generation of historians, uh, and you create a whole bogus history uh, of U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, foreign intervention and stuff overseas. And so that's essentially what I'm getting at with that. All right. All right. And then the, the climax of the book is, although there was actually another... I, um, there was actually another chapter where you were basically the evidence that they presented to try to prove that the United States did not do do bioweapons in Korea actually in, incriminated them, uh, incriminated them. I think it was Milton Leitenberg. But yeah. the but but the but the but you your 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 last chapter is in the secret ugly. 
by the way, I'm going to show it one more time because I want everybody to go out and buy a copy of this. Was a chapter entitled, quote, The Smoking Gun is Found. And this is where you put the uh, you put you put the sledgehammer on the on the nail. Please tell us about it. Well, yes, uh, this actually was a discovery of Jeff Kay's that he found. That's right. Uh, and it was amazing. Uh, it's a very glossy uh, folio printed by the CIA to commemorate uh, the 60th anniversary of the Korean War. Uh, and what the, this document does, uh, it, well, let me first explain it. It's the glossy brochure, and then in the back, on the back cover, there's a sleeve, and there's a CD in the sleeve, and this CD, once you open it and look at it, contains 1,300 documents, which were all part of what Jeff called uh, communications intelligence, COMINT, which is a subset of signal intelligence, SIGINT, which are military uh, terminology for types of information uh, through specific channels. And what the communication intelligence is, is information that's gathered by listening stations of the battlefield communication between uh, different, uh, different groups of troops in the field and their commanders back at the home base. And so, what these 1,300 documents illustrate is the communication between soldiers in the field and commanders uh, in bunkers uh, behind who are communicating by radio, and they're explaining things like, uh, you know, and asking for things like, we need some DDT, we need, uh, we need flamethrowers, we need... Uh, what should we do? We have this powder that's been dropped and we, we can't test it. Can you send in a crew? Uh, and so all this information has been gathered and then summarized. That what the CIA has these listening posts and then the listening posts forward what they've got to uh, a station chief. And then the station chief takes this information and synthesizes it and puts it in report and sends it back to Washington. So it's these reports from station chiefs that are around the world, not just in Asia, but all over the world. Uh, and it's a curated account that it's selected. It's not the entire body of information over this two year period, but it's a selective uh, uh, collection of ones that uh, reference Korea. And so ultimately what you have is you have a document from the CIA of created by the CIA, which summarizes the communication, the field communication uh, of people engaged in actual combat. And that's what the smoking gun is. So here we have it. There's a direct line between uh, the eyewitnesses of events on the ground uh, and the uh, and the publication of them uh, from Washington D.C. Yeah, and we actually uh, uploaded all 1,300 of those those documents on, up to the Bioweapon Truth Commission. They're all there. 
I think under the under the CIA directory, and uh, and Jeff K did a magnificent job of going through every one of them, and 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 pulling out all of the all of the incriminating uh, communication that sh- showed that the United States was in fact engaging in uh, in bioweapon uh, uh, use in North Korea and and China during the Korean War. So they. They, they incriminated them. <laughs> they they basically published they basically pu- published the evidence uh, that they were in fact that we the the United States was in fact doing this. And so Milton Leitenberg and everybody else with all of their outrageous lies and scams and and fake news as you talk about that the CIA can can gin up, it it all becomes meaningless because the CIA in fact incriminated uh, in, incriminated the United States for something they've been denying for 70 years so uh, it's a it's a pretty amazing find and and we we have uh, Jeff K to thank for that yeah it's ironic you know it's it's kind of remarkable but you know the CIA is such a monstrously huge entity now, a real octopus that um, they don't. Uh, you know internally, they one tentacle doesn't know what the other is. Mm-hmm. You know enough yeah. past that there's a whole new generation of archivists that don't know what the the ugly secrets are and need to be kept under a tight lid. And so it's just sort of the nature of the beast, I think. Yeah. Can't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, everybody, before closing, what writing journalism plans have you got in the pipeline? You mentioned a, a second sort of a sequel to this book. Yes, that's the secret ugly project is that what I locked off in order to create this book is the history of the Korean War. And there are several histories of the Korean War out there. But almost all of them are either stories about soldiers and the hardships of of, uh, the war or their academic tomes, which are difficult to read and and, kind of, well, I won't criticize them more than that. Um, But what I want to do is something that is much more readable, something that gives uh, a larger sort of picture of why the war came to be, why the U.S. In, it, uh, uh, at, and got involved uh, in this war, you know? What, 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 what were the, the sort of the rationales behind it? I want to paint a bigger picture. And so that's, that's my next project, and I, I think I get it done and out in here. Super. Well, folks, thank you, Tom, for being on the show tonight. I'll give you all the 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 macro view, the secret ugly, the subtitle, the hidden history of U.S. germ war in Korea, by Thomas Powell, out there in in Sacramento, California. It's a fascinating read. It's a personal read, you know, with all of his with all of his with his 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 uh, vignettes about his family. It's a wonderful book. I encourage everybody to get out and read it. Tom, Tom is it's available in both print and ebook. That's correct. Okay, so some people like to read paper and some people like to read an ebook. And you can even ask your library to order the ebook because now libraries, uh, you know, let out books for two to three weeks. So you you know you can even get the ebook if you want. So anyway, Tom, thanks a million. Fascinating read. 
wonderful, and I would love to come out and uh, well, we we saw each other this summer uh, when you visited. You took a tour of uh, of Normandy and we and Bayeux and Aumanche, yeah. and uh, but uh, um, hopefully I'll be able to reciprocate again. I I saw you first in, in San Francisco, and then you saw us and in, in in Normandy and Bayeux and Aumanche, and now it's my turn to come and visit you visit you well, guys back in. We got <laughs> bedroom, Jeff. You're welcome. <laughs> Camp out for a couple of nights. <laughs> All right, thank All you. Right. Thank you very much. This is Jeff J. Brown, China Rising Radio, Sinoland, and uh, a wonderful show with Thomas Powell. Good night. Ooh.